0: I get it. All right. Well, the mic's on, so we're going to start. Welcome. Uh, we are in Philippians tonight. And before we even get started, does anyone want to guess what the topic of, and theme of Philippians is? All right. It'll make it that much more exciting. I just figured maybe someone would. I misjudged it. Uh, we're going to pray, and then we are going to dive into our study. So let's pray together. Lord, we come to you now. We are thankful for this time tonight to get to uh, dive into the book of Philippians. Uh, You are so good to us to give us this time each week to be able to open the Word in the middle of the week, to kind of maybe regain our footing, refocus our hearts and our minds, Lord. As we consider a very uh, sober and challenging letter tonight, I pray that you would speak to us as you see fit. We love you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, what was the main point of Galatians? And before you answer that, let me just remind you these are survey studies. If you haven't been here in a while, this is your first time here, first time here uh, in, a, in a bit. These are survey studies. So we're taking a week at a time. We've had one week in Galatians, one week in Ephesians. This will be our week in Philippians, where we're just trying to figure out what was, what's the main point of the book so that you can kind of, on your own, gain sort of a catalog or a library of where you can go if you're trying to do particular work with the Scripture. So. If, if there's a certain issue that you're facing, this gives you a better idea of where you can go. And also, I wanted to let y'all know, I mentioned it last week. This is the book that we're working out of. Mark Dever made one for the Old Testament, and one for the New Testament. The Old Testament was Promises Made, the New Testament's called Promises Kept. And so, every study is sort of a, a, a summarizing of his notes. And what he did was, and I don't know how he did it, he's one of those people that I don't know how he does a lot of the things that he does, but he actually preached through a book of the Bible uh, over the course of a little over a year, just one book a week. And he would preach like Romans in one Sunday. And just the way that his mind works is, is pretty brilliant. So if, if y'all are wanting to dig a little deeper and look at some of the details you'll hear about in these studies, this, this is the book. I want y'all to be able to put eyes on it. So that said... Two weeks ago, Galatians, what was the main point, main topic? Yep, Paul was admonishing the church because they were allowing the Judaizers, Judaizers to come in and dilute the gospel. How were they diluting it? Say that again? Twisting the truth, Twisting the truth and how did they twist it? adding to it. And what what did they add to it? Circumcision. Circumcision. Yeah. Yeah. They were essentially saying in order to become a Christian, you have to first become a Jew and to become a Jew, you have to be circumcised. So they set this precedent as false teachers that you had to make a showing in the flesh. You had to have um, essentially a man-made righteousness to be able to be a Christian. And Paul was not happy about this. Um, he, He was upset. He was concerned that they would fall away from the original message to such a degree that he actually says in that book, he says that when, when they do that, and when they try to make the showing the flesh, I would wish that the knife would slip. He says that in Galatians. So he is not, it was not one of those warnings that's like a light warning. It's a warning. Yes, that means what you think it means. It's a, it's a very heavy warning where he's like, man, I, this, is, this is terrible. This is adding a, a millstone to the neck of someone um, who's trying to seek Christ. And so the theme there was faith, like how to have faith that's not um, convoluted or interrupted or watered down or changed. What about in Ephesians last week? What was the theme? God's plan for creation? Unity? These all really fall under the bigger heading of just grace, like the first three chapters of Ephesians are the, uh, the what God has done, and then the next three are what we should do in light of it. And so it was Ephesians. Were there any points that stuck out last week that, uh, that kind of stuck with you all over the course of the week? Any any thoughts that y'all have had since that study? Yes, we can be united in Christ even though there are other significant differences. That's a, that was one that stuck with me, just kind of looking at all the... Petty ways that I can impose my own expectations on someone when it's really a different belief in the same faith. All right, well, this week is Philippians, um, and the message is on humility. Philippians, the main message is humility. Philippians is called one of Paul's prison letters because he's literally writing it from prison. The audience of the letter is a group of Christians who were discouraged and fearful. Because of Paul's imprisonment for preaching the gospel. So imagine if you're like father in the faith, the guy who had planted your church and brought you to faith and shared the gospel with you is now in jail. That's who the audience is. So if we're wanting to really understand from a big picture, sort of bird's eye view, we have to be thinking in those terms. What would it be like to be members of a very small church where your leader who planted the church, who is sort of a father figure in the faith, is now in prison? For preaching the gospel. We don't know exactly when Paul wrote the letter, but it's pretty clear that um, it seems that he might be close to death's door, that Paul is staring at least in his mind's eye at the gleam of the executioner's sword. Dever says, it's amazing what comes into focus when you think life is about to end. So Philippians, this letter is really a letter of Paul saying, this is what's important for you guys, and as he's at the end of his life, this is what's coming into focus for him that he's sharing in a very, very personal way. So tonight, our outline for this overview is going to be seven observations. Seven observations about Paul's relationship with the Philippians, Paul's example, and Paul's instructions to them. Seven observations on Paul's relationship with the Philippians, Paul's example, and Paul's instructions to them number one, the first observation as we read through this letter is the Philippians and Paul care for each other now this is where where have we seen this before? The Philippians and Paul care for each other. where have we seen this before in Galatians yeah well, and what was it you well you know but you don't know you you yeah yeah. Yeah: that, Yeah. yeah, there seemed to be a sign that, that he says, "Look with what big letters I'm writing," And he says, "You would have gouged your eyes out for me." And, and it seems like there's just this real mutual love and respect and care for each other, where um, it, it, the gospel sort of changes your relationship with teacher and those who are being taught. And so he had this deep love for them, where he was willing to make sacrifice here. we find him in jail for the gospel that he's preaching. And yet they reciprocated that and just apparently, they showed him really, really great care in, in Galatia. And here, we see that it's not much different with the Philippians. Look at 2:25. 2:25 says actually we'll start in um, we'll start in 19. Nope, we'll start in 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger, and minister to my need. So Epaphroditus is this great example of how the Philippian church cared for Paul. Paul is in prison, and I don't know if you've ever known anyone in prison, but it's kind of hard for like the whole church to go visit whoever's in prison. Early on in Crosspoint, we had uh, a guy... Who was in prison there in Rockwall? and you know we cared for him and we loved him. you know he'd made a bad decision, obviously he wouldn't have been there, but it was kind of it's hard to say, okay guys, well let's support him and let's all go. And so um, not everyone could go, so certain people would go and get to visit with him and encourage him. Well, here, um, and I want to be careful. that's just an example of someone in prison. this guy wasn't in prison for preaching the gospel, so that's where the illustration breaks down. <laughs> he was in prison for doing non-gospel things. Um, but here, they loved him by sending someone named Epaphroditus. And this was back in Acts 16. If you want to go back and kind of read the backstory in your own time, but they sent Epaphroditus to minister to Paul's needs. And he goes on to say, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. So this picture is that the church loved Paul, Paul's in prison, so they send him Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus goes and loves Paul, encourages Paul, serves alongside Paul, doing things that Paul can't do because he's in prison and in, while doing it he got really sick and he almost died and Paul knew that this was a stress on the Philippian church and so he's saying, "I love y'all, y'all sent him to me, but now I'm going to send him back to you to relieve some of that stress, and you know he, he needs to rest and so when when he lands, you should honor him because such men should be honored. So not all the Philippians could visit Paul in prison. They, be, they sent Epaphroditus. He became ill. He risked his life for Paul. Dever raises a question here about if we should ever stop praying for those that God had in our life. Because what's interesting, we don't know how long Paul has been away from the Philippian church. So here we see them you know, sending relief and praying, but we don't know how long he's been away from the Philippian church here. So Dever was kind of, he kind of brought this thing to folks. He was like, man, God brings people in and out of our lives all the time that that love us and serve us and encourage us and sort of sharpen us and edify us. And then they're gone. And he said, "When when I see this and I see how the Philippians still had such care for Paul and Paul still had care to send Epaphroditus back to them after he had been there for a while. He's like, I wonder if it shouldn't stir us to think about people who have crossed paths with us, people who were um, a part of our story of faith, a part of our journey of faith. And he said, I wonder if this shouldn't stir us up to continue to pray for them as these guys were clearly praying for one another. I wonder if it shouldn't stir us up to maybe even reach out to them and show them some love and encourage them because even like with Epaphroditus, such men should be honored. And so I share that with y'all tonight. You may have someone in your you know, Christian walk that was a part of your journey for a while that just because they're not here, maybe that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean you don't pray for them anymore and you don't think about them. And every now and again, maybe you should reach out. And so this little, this little uh, thing that's happening in the middle of this book may be an encouragement for you to consider someone who, is, who has blessed you the way that um, this church has blessed Timothy and Timothy's blessed this church and Epaphroditus has blessed both of them as well. Look at 2.19. So the Philippians and Paul care for each other we see this in them sending Epaphroditus but look at what Paul says in 2:19 he says i hope in the lord jesus to send timothy to you soon so that i too may be cheered by by news of you for i have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare for they all seek their own interests not those of christ but you know timothy's proven worth How, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul reciprocated the love shown to him by not only sending Epaphroditus back to them, but by sending Timothy of all people with Epaphroditus. Now, it's clear that there's a great affection for Timothy here, and they've served in ministry in a, in a significant way. But the question I want, you to, I want to ask is, what's the qualification for ministry that Paul seems most concerned with here? What's the thing that is going to be a benefit to the Philippian church when Paul sends Timothy back to them? Concerned He's concerned for their welfare. Genuine care for other people. He, he doesn't say, you know, Timothy's super eloquent. Timothy's a great teacher, preacher. Timothy is so in Tim- Timothy really knows this or that. But the thing that is in the, the middle of why it's good for Timothy to go and serve is that he has genuine care for other people. The qualification for ministry that Paul seems most, most concerned with is that he is genuinely concerned for their welfare. That should challenge us. That should encourage us that it's not just about doing certain things, but it's about having, you know, one of the themes in Romans and and, um, Galatians and Ephesians is that the forward movement of truth is intensely relational. It's through relationships that God is moving his kingdom forward, that he's exercising dominion, and that his reign and rule is growing. And sometimes we get we can think of church in just really sort of programmatic terms. And this is what we do. We go here on Wednesdays for this study. We go here on Sundays for the corporate gathering. We go to life group. But it's an important reminder here that genuine concern for other people is the main thing. I mean, The double love command, love God, love people. Genuine concern is, is something that should be just central to who we are. And it affects what we say and how we move and how patient we are with each other. Some things we'll be looking at here in a moment. But Um, Genuine concern for other people is something that should um, uh, be on our radars as we're studying this. The second thing, so the first one is that the Philippians and Paul care for each other. That's one of the first dynamics and observations in this this relationship between him and this church. And the second is that Paul has a pattern of loving ministry to them. He has a pattern of loving ministry to them. And we see that just in the opening. Look at one one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. So we see things are going well at the church, um, at least in the in the the manner that there's there is leadership, there's overseers, there's deacons. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, um, for you all, making my prayer with joy. ...because of your partnership in the gospel from, this, from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you, because I, tol- I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus." And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Even in prison, Paul is still serving this church. How? Even in prison, Paul's serving them. How? How? encouragement, letters, and particularly what else? What's he doing in prison? Praying for them. It's a great reminder that a great way to serve others is to pray for them. He, he can't be there. He can't be hands-on. He can't be like the guy in the field that's, that's doing the work, but he's doing significant work and in fact serving them by praying for them. Dever says that Paul longs for these Philippians as naturally as a parent longs for a child. And he said, he's not one of those people with a grand evangelistic vision who loves all the world in general, but never seems to love anyone in particular. I'm going to read that again. It's a convicting quote. He's not one of those people with a grand evangelistic vision who loves all the world in general, but never seems to love anyone in particular. Very, very convicting because it's easy to dream big and to think in big terms and speak of love. But then when it's, what are you doing on your deathbed? He's praying for other people. He's serving them by interceding for them and going to God in prayer. In what way does Paul pray for their love for each other? He prays for something specific about their love for each other. What is it? Yeah, that it would grow and abound more and more. What else? We'll complete it, yeah. And, and in what way would it be more complete? What, what, is, what is he hoping the love will have? Knowledge. Knowledge and all discernment. And all discernment. So Paul's prayer for them is that their love for one another and for others would be one that is a discerning love. What do you think that means? A love that has discernment, a love that isn't void of knowledge, but is full of knowledge. Because sometimes we don't think of love and knowledge as going together. We think of love as sort of this natural or, I guess for some people, unnatural sort of response um, to a situation. But why would he pray that their love would be Um, filled with knowledge and discernment. What do you think? So it'd be unconditional? Yeah. So truth wouldn't be compromised because we know that's a problem. Yep. When you're wise and you love someone, sometimes you'll do really difficult things. You'll make greater sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. What else? Think about some examples where you see love that is really informed, love that has a lot of knowledge. How does that play out? Oh, yeah, there we go. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you have to challenge someone and that means that you got to have knowledge and love. We speak the truth, but we speak it in love. But love doesn't mean that you don't speak the truth. So there's a way, there's a thing you have to speak and a way that you have to speak it. Yeah. Yes. Specific. Intentionality. What are some other thoughts on love that is coupled with a lot of knowledge and discernment? Why do you need discernment? Yeah, he pairs. Yep. If you're serving Christ, you can't have one without the other. Knowledge without love, bad deal. Love without knowledge is a bad deal. It's, what we see here is uh, I don't know. The first thing that I think of is if you've ever seen a parent with a child who has um, some form of a special need, where it's just like they are so attentive, um, so, so in tune, so informed like when a parent finds out that a child has a need that's special, um, they will will become overnight experts in a field, right? Have you ever seen that, where it's just like, you go from, I don't know anything about this to this is a part of our life, and I'm going to be a professional, I'm going to be an expert because I want to love my child well. I want to give my child everything I can give them, as best as I can give it to them. And if it means daily stuff, it means, I mean, you'll see... You can discipline this kid in this way, but it doesn't work with this kiddo. And so you got to show love that's, that has knowledge with it. And so that's kind of what we're seeing here with Paul. He's saying, I hope you all love each other in an informed way. I hope you all love each other in a way that makes a lot of sense, that is not just empty sort of lip service language. And um, another thing that I think that this means is that love is far more than affirmation. This love that is informed isn't just sort of this, I just affirm you. I just affirm, way to go, high five, you're good to go. I'm never going to speak against you because I love you. I'm never going to challenge you because I love you. I'm never going to say something that's going to make you uncomfortable because I love you. When love is paired with knowledge, sometimes it will not affirm. When love is paired with knowledge, sometimes it will not affirm whatever the person is doing because they love the person too much to affirm them in their sin. That's what's going on here. They're being tempted to apostatize, to, to go back on their faith so that they're not, not treated poorly because of their faith. And so it's like, guys, you've got to stand firm. What we're going to see here in a few minutes is Paul grabs every one of their fears and piles it up in front of them and says, let's deal with this because this is where your faith is going to play out. But he doesn't say, That's okay. I affirm you because that's your thing, and I affirm you because that's your thing, and I affirm you because that's your thing, but rather, love that is coupled with knowledge will not always affirm. The third thing is that Paul ministers through hard circumstances. It's kind of obvious. We've already touched on it a hundred times, but in the next verse it says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So he's like, yes, I'm in prison, but everyone who guards this place knows that I'm in prison for Jesus. So my name's not going forward. Jesus's name is going forward. And he says, and and most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What just happened? Like, explain in your own words what just happened with Paul's imprisonment in just those three verses. Some significant things happened by him getting thrown in the clank for, for preaching. What was the first thing that happened? Guards heard the gospel. Guards heard the gospel. They know he's in there because he just completely, totally sold out for Jesus. What else? Yeah. Others who knew most of the brothers, most of them, maybe not all of them, but at least most of them, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are more bold to speak the word without fear. Crazy what it is that made them confident in the Lord and bold to speak the word without fear. Their buddy getting thrown in jail—not just their buddy, their father in the faith, the guy who planted the church—getting thrown in jail had this effect that really wouldn't normally be expected. What I want us to see here is that this isn't just a spin on a situation. This isn't just Paul saying it's—it's not some political thing. I mean, we've seen so much political spin in uh, the last seventy-two hours, where something happens and someone says something, and someone says something, and then. They spin it, and you would end up with alternative facts and all kinds of funny stuff. But this isn't a spin. This isn't him saying, no, this is really good, when it's actually terrible. It's actually good. It's actually fitting. It's actually great for the forward movement of truth. Paul actually does not see his imprisonment as defeat. And we, we see the reason why. Is that because the gospel's going forward and people are really becoming bold and they're speaking it without fear? And fear was a huge problem in the Philippian church. Fear was a huge problem in the Philippian church. Dever says that Christians often become more fearless when the enemy executes his plans because the enemy's powerlessness will be exposed in his very attacks. When we see the saints suffering for the gospel and continuing in their faith, we can expect God's grace. To use that suffering to spread the gospel. Have you, have y'all ever seen any examples of the enemy's plan being completely executed and then being exposed as powerless in uh, in the in the very attack? Y'all ever seen anything like that? You have any examples of that to come to mind? the cross <laughs> that's the big one right oh man they won they killed him oh but he conquered death and found that there is absolutely no power now not does the, not only does the enemy have no power over Jesus but the enemy has no power over anyone who belongs to Jesus so death is conquered not just by Jesus for Jesus but by Jesus for every one of his children of the promise so yeah that's the big one yeah the uh, oh it looks like looks like the the empire won and and they, you know, they, they put him in a tomb, and what are we going to do? And, and it completely showed the powerlessness of the enemy in the execution of the plan. What are some other examples? Biblical examples, or examples from your own life, or examples from someone else's life if you don't want to get that personal? Yeah. Or, you know, anyone who's tried to wipe out the Jews. Right? The fact that the Jews still exist—great, great example of that. But yes, the Nazis had probably the most vile effort towards it. Um, but they're not alone. There's, there's many, many, many people who have um, thought that they could do that, and interestingly enough, they're still there. What else? Great example. It was good. Yeah, it thankfully did not succeed. Great example. What are some other examples? You ever had anything really terrible happen to you that was evil? And you're still standing? Still persevering in the faith? You don't have to raise your hand and share. But if there is something like that, that's where our minds should be right now in this study. The things that God has brought us through. I was telling a friend today about something just absolutely bizarre that God brought us through. And I was thinking about this, just thinking, man, that was the most evil thing I've ever seen face to face. And here we are, stronger than before. God sustains his children. He shows great love, great compassion. And in the execution of some of the worst things that, that, that the enemy could try to, to do, we see after that, this picture of restoration and Sanctification, and it's used for our holiness. I mean, you think about Job. He went through some pretty hard stuff because the devil wanted to mess with him. And at the end, he, he learned so much about himself and so much about God, and he was, he was blessed abundantly. Was there loss? Yes. Was he struck down? Yes. Was he destroyed? No. He wasn't destroyed. Struck down, but not destroyed. Christians often become more fearless, when the enemy executes his plans because the enemy's powerlessness will be exposed in the very attacks. Is there anything that you were terrified of before you faced it and then once you faced it with the Lord, you're not as terrified of it anymore? Having babies. Having babies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me too. I didn't even want to be in the room. That was actually the first thing I thought of. I was like, man, you, you women have babies. That's amazing. <laughs> Remember the first one I saw born, I was like, I can't believe anyone makes it through this. This is crazy. <laughs> this happens all day, every day in this place. I feel like I witnessed a miracle. It's what it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It went well. It. What else? mm-hmm yeah. yeah 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 what what's the anxiety usually from and things like that fear, fear? what else the unknown and what what is it though like f- okay fear of the unknown the lack of trust unfaithfulness yeah feeling like you could fail disappoint people, let people down, be embarrassed. You can't the yeah. Yeah. I again in our idolatry, we usually pick things we think we can control. And so we can't control the unknown. And so <laughs> we can't we we can't control the unknown. And so yeah, in idolatry we pick what we what we think we can control. And so like a little, you know, golden calf that if you don't like the way it's looking at you, you can just turn it around and make it look the other way. Um this, uh, this, look at one fifteen. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So he's saying, one of the things you guys are seeing is that some of these people who are emboldened, you know, he's talking about these people who are confident and bold and speaking the word without fear, some of them are speaking Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. How might one preach Christ out of envy and rivalry? What what, what, what would that look like? What does that mean? How would you know if someone's preaching out of envy and rivalry? Yep. 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 Them, their words, what they bring. Usually it's seen as just obsessing over who can get the most people. That that seems to be the most obvious indicator. We should care about reaching more people. But when when all, all measure of success in Christian ministry is numbers, there's a problem with that Christian ministry. There's more to it than numbers. And a lot of times this envy and rivalry exists where maybe the two people teaching one of them has just a significant hatred or disdain or frustration towards another preacher. That's another way it can be seen too. This envy and rivalry is when the preaching, as opposed to you know, going toward the Lord and about Jesus, it turns and is against this other guy because your, your message is better or you should be listened to more. So there's envy and rivalry. But others from goodwill. Goodwill, that's an interesting way to say it. So why, why would they, what does it mean to preach from goodwill? Yeah, wanting the best for anyone else. It's Timothy. Genuine care for other people. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." Could we say as much with Paul here? Um, how does this uh, reveal, or what does this reveal is needed for the furtherance of God's rule and reign? Well, what is needed for the gospel to be proclaimed and, and to go forward? Humility and, a full surrender. Humility and full surrender. Someone to speak it. What's interesting here is that the gospel is going forward with both. And it's really a super interesting thing that pretty much what we're seeing here is the thing that's needed for the furtherance of God's rule and reign is a sovereign God. He's using these hypocrites for the gospel, he's using liars for the gospel, he's using envious rivalry for the gospel, he's using a complete lack of goodwill for the gospel, he's using a lack of love for the gospel. He's using selfish ambition for the gospel, and so is it right that they're doing that? Absolutely not. Is it potential proof that they don't even believe the gospel? It could be, but what we see here is, you know, this pattern of God using the foolish to confound the wise. Um, Dever today, as I was reading, I laughed out loud on it. It was, uh, he said, he was talking about, you know, he uses, you know, um, old barren people. To father many nations, you know, he uses old, barren people to to start a revolution in the with the young people, and then he said, uh, in referring to Paul, he referred to him as a middle-aged academic bigot. He's like Paul was a middle-aged academic bigot, and that's who he used to reach the Gentiles. And so here we see just this picture again of um, even hypocrites. There's this picture of God will use the foolish to confound the wise. And look at 19. It says. Um, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. At first, it sounds like he's saying, guys, it's okay. I'm for sure I'm going to get out of here. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm for sure That by the love of Christ and the power of God, I will persevere in the faith, whether I get out of here or whether I do not, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So if I don't die here, it just means I got more work to do. Fruitful labor. I'm hard pressed. Um, Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. And he goes on to say, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But he says, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in time you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Even amid thoughts of his own death, amid thoughts of his own death, potentially on his deathbed. Paul is concerned for the Philippians. Um, One of the quotes in the study was, uh, if you're not willing to work for God in imperfect situations, then you're not willing to work because this is all that we have in this life. That was very convicting to me as as I read it today. If you're not willing to work for God in imperfect situations, then you're not willing to work because imperfect situations are all that we have. We don't have perfect conditions for successful ministry in everything that we do. So we work hard in imperfect things. And one of the things that that does is it causes us to persevere with each other. A lot of times when we have differences, when there's heartache or strife between us, we all too often just choose to just part ways. We reach a hurdle, I'm done with you. You upset me, I'm done with you. You're not doing things the way I think you need to do it, I'm done with you. And We part ways, and what we see here is that love causes us, and this this um, belief causes us to persevere, to be um, long suffering, to show forbearance. If you're not willing to work for God in imperfect situations, then you're not willing to work because this is all we have in life. There's some people who have that tendency to be like, "I'm just not going to do that. I'm just I'm just not going to be a part of it. I'm just not going to not I'm not going to try because look at look at what's already look at the hurdles that are already there, and." We know those people. Sometimes we are those people. But then have you ever seen those people that seem like no hurdle is too high and they're just like bring it on and they, just, they, they persevere and they drive forward? And those who do that in the faith are, are an encouragement to us because all of our situations are imperfect situations. Nothing is exactly how it should be. Your marriage is not as exactly as it should be, but you're supposed to persevere in it. You might have friendships that aren't exactly as they're supposed to be, but you try to persevere and be long-suffering with people. You might have a work situation that's just not ideal, but you can persevere because no work situation is perfectly ideal. And so we put our faith in God and that allows us to move forward in these difficult situations. Number four, these last few are a little shorter. Paul exhorts the Philippians to follow his example. Look at 3.12. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already made perfect. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. At least three times in this letter, Paul explicitly urges them to follow his example. So this does a few things for us. Number one, it's an important reminder that we do not learn only from spoken words. As one of the teachers here, I cannot begin to... Humbly express how encouraging it is when I hear, Oh, that, thank you, that blessed me, the teaching blessed me, the preaching blessed me, or it, it brought this thing to light, or it's made me wrestle with this thing. Man, that, as a teacher and a preacher, that, that's, like, that's like what you want to happen, but you can't just be driven by the response and, and all that. Teaching and preaching is very, very important. But what we see here is that we don't learn only from spoken words. By God's design, Christians learn by example. By God's design, Christians learn by example. As Christians, we're all a part of this learning process. And so with your children, you know, there's a difference between saying, you guys need to pray, and then or leading them in prayer and giving them an example to follow. In our words, how we use our words, we can say one thing, but if we actually use our words in the way that we're supposed to, we set an example for others. In service to others. I mean, that, that message, that, um, that point that was in early on in the study of some of us have you know, this sort of grand picture of love for people, but we don't have specific love for any individuals. But when we do that and when we show love and we pour ourselves out for the afflicted and we seek to, to relieve those who need relief, we set this example, and by God's design, we're a people who need examples to follow and we're a people who are supposed to give examples for others to follow. And so there's this picture here of you know, this question that we could all ask. What if others had followed my example today? What if others had followed my example this week? Because it's God's design that, that his people follow a proper example. And so, you know, if I said, like I was sitting here thinking about, man, every time I see Paul say it, I'm like, that, that sure seems a little bold, right? It's like, it's like hey, guys, hey, 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 everyone up here, do what I do. Say what I say, walk how I walk, live how I live. I'm modeling faith for you and so you can see how to do it. Man, I know that that seems like something that's obvious we're supposed to do, but when you hear him say it out loud, it's sort of this humbling like, what if people are doing that? What if people are saying what I'm saying and following my lead and I don't even know it? Am I leading them toward Christ or away from Christ? And it's sort of a very sobering question to ask. Follow the example of Paul. Number five is the Philippians had been presented with the way of pride. In 3 1, it says, Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. It's, <laughs> it's kind of a funny phrase. He's in jail. It's like, oh, it's no trouble for me to write you. What else am I going to do? Um, number, uh, in verse 2, it says, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The way of pride presenting, presented in these verses, look down at 18 and 19. It says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. The Philippians have seen the way of pride. The Philippians have seen the way of confidence in the flesh. I want you to think of, you know, those, the, the Judaizers and the false teachers who would have them make a showing with circumcision. Think of those as, before you become a Christian, you have to make a showing in the flesh. Or before you become a Christian, we have to be able to put confidence in your flesh. Or before you become a Christian, you have to prove that you're self-righteous, is what that means. It's a a weird thing for Christians to take something that's been written to Christians and try to just impose it on people who don't have Christ. We're going to talk more about this on Sunday when we talk about homosexuality. And what we see here is, it's it's just, it's self-righteousness. It's To say you have to do all these things before you can ever come to Christ is, is promoting self-righteousness. It's promoting false gospel. It's promoting false assurance. Like if you just completely clean your life up and change your entire existence, then you're welcome to come to Christ. When I think the message is, listen to God, obey God, put your faith in Christ, and trust that he helps you to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Like the, the, there's this reality that we can't do the right thing without Jesus. And it's so easy to put the cart before the horse. And we're going to talk more about this on Sunday. But it's just, it's something that has just been like Romans 1 as we're going through it. These things as we're going through it. The point isn't do this and then you can be with Jesus. Or do this and prove that you love Jesus. Or do this so that you can be joined to God through Jesus. We put our faith in God because without Jesus, we can't do the right thing. We can't make the right decision. We can't get our lives straight. The whole point of the body being a temple isn't that you get it cleaned up so he'll come there. It's that he comes there and he washes you clean with his, the sacrifice of himself. So this way of pride presented is the opposite of that. It's confidence in the flesh. It's circumcision. It's make a showing in the flesh. It's self-made righteousness. That is self-righteousness. I made myself righteous by becoming circumcised. That is foolishness, and it is an error that he is um, making sure that they don't try to manufacture their own. Um, If your Christianity is wrapped up with the benefits of what it brings you now, you will not last, and it will become obvious that you're not a Christian. That's one of Devers' quotes. If you're just wrapped up in the benefit of the now, because the benefit of circumcision was that the Jews would be accepting of you, and that the Jews wouldn't have to face persecution um, because they're not interrupting the Jewish way of life. So for the Jew, it meant life changes as it did the Gentile. But if the Jews could just hold on to circumcision and get you to be circumcised first, then it meant less life change for the for the Jew. And so it meant less persecution for the Jew and and um, less sacrifice for the Jew. So um, the sixth thing is, is that Christ went the way of humility. And this is the verse that, man, I just remember this as a kid reading this and just realizing there's something different about Jesus. This, this was probably before my profession of faith. I remember being in a fourth grade Sunday school class and reading this and just, being, just marveling, but it says this in 2 verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul knows that if these Philippians are to hold together, neither he nor they can rely on favorable circumstances. Our unity is held together by something much stronger than favorable circumstances, and it's seen in the way that we show humility as we serve others, as we put others before ourselves, as we look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's what people who are in Christ do. The last thing is that the Philippians should rely on God, even in suffering. In 2.12, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. One of the last quotes is the Philippians think that they're Christians, but Paul's concerned about their fear. Over and over again, they're proclaiming Christ. They think they're Christians. He's not saying that they're not, but he's really concerned about their fears. And so he walks over and he grabs hold of all the particular things that they're scared of. And he says to work on these things that are consuming them. There's things that are consuming them in fear, in envy, in anger, in lust, in worry. And rather than just love that doesn't have knowledge, he shows love with knowledge and says, We're going to take all these things that you guys are fearful about, or all these things you're struggling with envy, lust, covetousness, fear, whatever it might be, and we're going to put it in a pile right here. And you guys are going to deal with them by doing this. Look at these things and then look to Christ and ask how he wishes to use these things that are your struggle. To work out your salvation. Because what else does it mean to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? You're, you're not working out that which you have already perfected. You're working out something that is a process. It's a pro- process of being sanctified. A process of being made holy. And the way that we are made holy is we deal with the stuff we need to deal with. And so Paul sets a prime example for these fear-filled young Christians by saying, we're going to deal with your fears. We're going to deal with your struggles. And that is the means by which we're going to grow in our faith, and rely on God, even in our suffering. The conclusion is the warm beating heart of this letter is the contentment that Christ had in the Father and in doing the Father's will, and that heart transforms our own. This has always been the key to living the Christian life, finding joy in God himself and God alone. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the book of Philippians. Um, It is uh, dear to me, and I feel like we could just spend so much more time in it. but even then, I'm, I'm thankful for the hour that we've gotten tonight to really consider this text. Uh, I pray that we would deal with whatever our issues are, that we would bring them before you, and what, if, it's, if it's fear, envy, lust, doubt, anger, whatever it might be, that we would genuinely work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. I pray that in Christ, we would look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others as we follow the example of humility that was set for us by our Lord. Lord, I also just pray that as Paul seemed to just have this otherworldly love for the Philippians, that we would have that kind of love for each other. I pray that the love that we have for each other is informed. And I know that it can only be informed if there's actual relationships and actual conversations and actual knowing and being known. Lord, if there's anyone here who struggles with knowing and being known, I pray that tonight's study would be an encouragement for them. An encouragement that it's it's good to know and be known because the four movement of truth is just intensely relational. Lord, we love you. We humble ourselves before you. We thank you for this time tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great night.